open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20. And by the way, we, we had asked uh, the folders. The folders are now printed out for the school. I think we, we had a few last time, but we printed some more out. If you'd like more folders, they have an application, all that information in there. You want to give them to your friends. Um, I think we have about six slots left in the kindergarten or something like that. I'm not sure, seven maybe. Pray, please be praying that God goes before us. And, you know, pray that if the Lord should show us, that we start looking for land. Just start praying, all right? Because with what the Lord's doing here, just start looking for land. That's what we're just going to pray. God, you go before us and you show us how you want to do that. But uh, I'm going to ask the same thing for the folks on Sunday, just to be praying little by little, one step at a time. But we want to start praying now, so that way if the Lord should have something, we're prayed up and we're ready. Amen? I thought you guys would like a little bit of that. So When I was away, I think the Lord sort of starts showing me that. So... Um, well, as we pick up where we've been here in Numbers chapter 20, Moses, remember, this is the next generation. Moses is 120 years old. Aaron is young at 123. <laughs> little Caleb and Joshua that ain't so little anymore, 77, and Joshua is 100 years old at this point. Um, Miriam's already gone to be with the Lord. Right? She was 127 years old, and in verse 1, she went to be with Jesus. So it's, it's been, you know, for Moses, it's been a lot of change. And then they started murmuring and complaining, and, you know, and then Moses had a moment of anger, moment of grief where he struck the rock, and we know that was symbolic or a picture, if you will, of Christ. We read 1 Corinthians 10.4, where Paul himself compares it back to Jesus Christ and striking, you know, Christ and, put, you know, trying to put him back on that cross, well, as we continue to go through now, we're, we're going to find that they're making their passage and their way to the promised land, but they got some stops and they got to go around some of these areas and we're going to be reintroduced to some of our friends or tribes or people groups from back in Genesis, right? It's going to start here and I'm going to read in verse 14. You're going to see a name that you probably haven't seen in a while. It says, now Moses sent messengers from Kadesh or Kadesh to the king of Edom. Well, who's the king of Edom, right? Who is the father of the Edomites? Esau, right? Do me, do me a favor. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25, verse 30. Genesis chapter 25, verse 30. Just as a way of recollection or uh, memory for us to kind of go back and look at this, I thought we'd take a few moments. We, uh, just coincidentally, we had a study in this today from one of the guys. So as I was hearing them teach, I was, that's my passage. You know, I was sitting there and I was watching them take a rake through it. And uh, I think it was, um, it was either David Guzik or it was uh, Don McClure. I can't remember which one right at the moment. But it was all, that, isn't that the point, Lo? It's Holy Spirit driven. It doesn't matter the guy that's up there. It's the word that's going forward that you remember. And uh, as we were going through this, we begin to look at Esau. And just by way of sort of recollection here, I thought we'd start back up at um, verse 19 of chapter 25, just to kind of set this in position, because isn't it interesting how God loves one and he hates the other, one representing the flesh, one representing the spirit, one that comes out that's handsome, masculine, rugged, you know, Everybody looks and would say, hey, this is the guy, right? He comes out, hey, look, he's the athlete, he's, he's the champion, he's the guy. And that's Esau. He was born first. And he comes out and he's got the good looks, he's got the charm, he's got the charisma. Uh, he's a hard worker, he's out in the field, the whole thing, right? And then his brother, what is it, minutes later, seconds later, really, grabbing, you know, Esau, right? Isaac. Laughter, you know, that way. Or, yeah, um, heel catcher, excuse me, comes out. And what's he doing? He's grabbing hold of. And uh, never let go of that. You know, always getting pulled through the world that way, right? Well, he, he comes out and here's a man that, boy, he wasn't, you know, fond of working in the field. He wasn't really a man's man, if you want to say it that way. He, he wasn't given the athleticism or the, the prominent good looks, didn't have his father's approval, really. Spent most of his time in tents, 
Can I use the term mama's boy? Do you understand what I mean if I say mama's boy? A mama's boy? And we see yet through this man, unlikely, right? Who would it normally you think? It's the, it's the star of the football f- team, right? It's the captain of the team. It's the quarterback. It's the all-star, right? That's the one God's going to use, of course. The best, the brightest, the one that's got everything put together and doesn't need help from anybody, right? I mean, that's who God uses. Well, if you study your scripture, you know that's not true. God uses many times those that are unqualified. They don't have it together. Maybe they weren't very good in school. Maybe they weren't very athletic. Maybe they, maybe they just didn't naturally walk into a room and have a charisma that people jumped around him. And he, he does it for his glory because he puts his spirit upon them. And it's his spirit that everybody sees, not the man, but the spirit in the man, spirit in the woman that everybody sees. Well, this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, if you had heard this, and you're Rebecca, and, you, and we covered this when we were in Genesis, but, the, you know, hang on, there's a problem here. I mean, everything we see in the Hebrew culture, the oldest, right, the prominent... 50% of the entire inheritance goes to the oldest, right? The other 50% is divided up through all the brothers. They have to share that, but the first one would go right, you know, the inheritance goes to the oldest that way. And so that would have been, what do you mean the younger? Think about how many times the Lord does this, actually. David, go, just, just begin to think in Scripture. Again, the least likely man that maybe the world would choose that the world would put their hand or fingerprint on and say, you see, that's the guy. I can trust him. He'll get it done. Oh, no. You see, God sees something far, far greater. He sees the template of the heart. He knows if that person's willing to say, Lord, enlarge my heart. I desire you in worship of you alone. He sees it. Even before time, he knows the DNA. He put it together. He put it together. And everyone has an opportunity, has a response. But, but Rebecca here, can you imagine? She's hearing this. She's, so when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb, and the first one came out red. Now, again, that can mean ruddy or ruddy, if you know the term. Again, rugged, handsome, that, that's kind of what it's pointing out. He came out that way. It wasn't just saying, you know, the boy needed a little son. That's not what he was pointing to here, you know. He wasn't, you know, he didn't have a liver issue or, or you know, nothing like that. It, it was pointing to his appearance. Well, later on, we're going to read he was also hairy, right? You know, I don't, why didn't they call him hairy? I, I don't know. But, but you, you think about this, this boy, and, and as uh, I think it was Don today said it, he says, you know, you think about it, it's almost like he's clothed or encased like a robe and hair. Just like, like, a, like a priestly robe upon him. Maybe not priestly, but a robe of, of distinction. Like he came out even with the robe on, you know, all together. Like it's just, he's all there. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau, Harry. Afterwards, his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Esau, Isaac, was 60 years old when she bore them. And that, that idea is a supplanter, right? So the boys grew and Esau was skillful hunter, a man of the fields. But Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. He was a mama's boy. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. His dad was morally fond of Esau. Never had his father's approval. Never had his father's approval that way, but, but his mother, right? So 
we, we kind of go on here. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with this same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called, what's it say? Edom. He becomes the father of the Edomites. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright. As of this day, and Esau said, look, I am about to die. What is, your, what is my birthright? What is this birthright to me? You see, what, what is the Esau model of? What's he a picture of? Throughout scripture, over and over again, four or five different places we read it, he's a picture of the flesh. He's the picture of the world and the desires of the world and all the fleshly desires that go with that. So much so that he was more in filling his belly, belly a fleshly desire than the spiritual inheritance that waited him, awaited him as the oldest, as the oldest child. He was willing to give it all up. He, he wasn't concerned about his spiritual, not only responsibility in the home, but his calling. He was willing to give all of that up for about a, what, a, a, a stew, a, a porridge? Then Jacob said, swear to me of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew, lentils. He ate and drank and rose and went his way. Then Esau despised his birthright. I'll turn to Genesis chapter 36 as well. Genesis chapter 36. Look at verse 9. And this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. Time permitting you all at the end here tonight, before you leave, look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16. We'll see once again. We, we know who it was. We, we know this Esau. We've, we, we've read about him. We recognize him. He's a picture of the flesh. Generation after generation, family after family, there's Esau still alive today. And they're engrossed in the flesh. And that's a picture here. So uh, it's important that we understand why God has set this up this way, why they're going to go through Edom, but they're going to refuse. This is their cousin. This is really their cousins. And they're, they're going to refuse their cousin. We're going to see it again over and over again. There'll be judgment for this, but, but let's continue to reading. So now Moses, right, sent messengers from Kadesh. You can turn back to Numbers. To the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardship that has befallen us. That's their cousins. They're very familiar. How our father went down to Egypt. We dwelt in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. When we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent the angel and brought us up out of Egypt. Now here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your border. Please let us pass through your country. We will not pass through the fields or vineyards, nor will we drink water from the wells. We will go along, important, underline this, the king's highway. That's important. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, his highway. Now, whenever you're going to go God's way, you can expect resistance. Amen? You can expect resistance. So we're not surprised that that this king is going to come back and say, no, you can't pass through here. You can't go on the king's highway. You know, you, you can't go that way. It's, there's, there's going to be resistance in our life the same way when we're walking in the will of God. We shouldn't expect just a, a, you know, a nice rolled out carpet path. Oh, absolutely. Go this way. Absolutely. No oppression, no affliction, just, just a lovely walk and a, a lovely, just a lovely, uh, Walk about, right? We shouldn't, we shouldn't expect that. Nowhere in your Bible does it tell us we should expect that. We will not turn aside to the right or to the left until we have passed through this, your territory. Then Edom said to him, you shall not pass through my land lest I come out against you with the sword. Well, that's quite aggressive, isn't it? It's a little aggressive. So the children of Israel said to him, we will go by the highway and if or my livestock, drink any of your water, then I will pay you for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. Then he said, you shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with many men and with a strong hand. Thus, Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. 
Now, this idea of turning away, it's important. It's not as though he's able to go. If I had a map to show you, it's almost like they're turning back towards the wilderness. This is important because they're going to, they're going to eventually start complaining and murmuring it, but it's because they had to turn back. And what are they reminded of? What are they looking back at? The past. And they're reminded of that rather than keeping their eyes on the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, where God told them and promised them, and by faith they knew they would be ushered in. No different than Jesus Christ has told us today that we too would be ushered into the kingdom of heaven. But there are some that still doubt. There are some that still wonder. How? So he demonstrated through his resurrection. How? Because he knew they would have questions. They would want a sign. And he said, the only sign you'll receive is the same sign Jonah had. Three days. Well, so what happens to Edom? Looks like God's not intervening, is he? I mean, what, what's going on here? God, I mean, this is your chosen people. Certainly, he wants to go on the king's highway. God, are you not going to intervene here? Is there, is there nothing that's going to be done for your righteous people that are trying to obey your commandments and statutes, this next generation? Well, for that, we got to turn to the book of Amos. Turn to the book of Amos. Let's look at chapter one, please. Right after Joel in your Bibles. Amos chapter one. His name means burden bearer. He was a prophet right around 786 to 746 BC during the reign of King Jeroboam II. Just to kind of historically give you context as a narrative where we're at. If you look at here, right around, well, verse 1, we're going to read God goes through and settles this account. He speaks specifically, Amos was a prophet that went forward. He was calling for justice. He was giving a warning of judgment. If you were reading the book of Amos, you would find one of the key verses in chapter 5, verse 24. We don't have time this evening. We will eventually get to this book and we will, we will go line by line. But I'd like you to focus in right now, if, if I could turn your attention to, uh, really beginning in verse 3, thus says the Lord of chapter 1 of the book of Amos. For three transgressions of Damascus and four. What does that mean? What does that mean when someone, it's three and four, four. What is that, what is the idea behind that? It's, it's an idiom, but what is he connoting through that? What's he trying to explain? Something that's continued to happen, and this is happening again, and again, and again. Over and over and over again. That's, that's what we see here. I will not turn away its punishment because they have, Threshed Gilead with the implements of iron, but I will send a fire into the house of Hazel, which shall devour the palace of Ben-Hadad. And I will also break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And the one who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden, the people of Syria, shall go captive to curse, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four. I will not turn away its punishment because they took captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. But I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza, which shall devour its palaces. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and the one who holds a scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnants of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord. God. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Tyre and for four I will not turn away its punishment because they delivered up the whole captivity of Edom. And do not remember the covenant of the brotherhood but I shall send a fire upon the wall of Tyre which shall devour its palaces. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Edom and four. Now we see Edom. I will not turn away its punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword. Do you remember how we just read that? How we, they came out against Israel with the sword aggressively? This is important. And cast off all pity, his anger tore perpetu you know, perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. He never forgave his brother. He might have, he might have wanted to forgive his brother, but he never set the account right. He never set the account. Do you remember in Genesis? He came out. There was 400 men with Esau. He came out to meet him. I mean, to meet Jacob like that. 
And it appears everything was well, but what ended up happening? Esau, more or less, as we read, ended up in the area of Kadesh. And he stayed there the whole time. Where did Jacob and his family line end up going? Well, eventually to Egypt, right? And that's the line we're told because he said, Jacob, I love Esau, I have hated. We read that in the book of Romans. Again, what is he saying? It's not specifically Esau. It was the representation spiritually of the flesh versus the spirit. God so loves when we walk in the spirit, but he definitely dislikes and hates when we walk in the flesh. Because when we're in the flesh, there's no humility. We're full of pride and arrogance and self-reliance. And God is, God is interested in, in telling us to get rid of all that. He wants us to humble ourselves, to come in, to, to fellowship with him, to be dependent on him, to surrender, to rely on him. That's what God desires for our lives. Because he can work with that. And after all, in our weakness, he is made strong. You see, it's, it's part of the plan. We're followers, he leads. Well, you can turn back the numbers. I mean, so why did I bring you there? Because I wanted you to understand that God is responsible for the recompense. And that, as he says, even in the New Testament, when, we're, when Paul quotes him and he says, hey, when your brother and sister, when, when something's off with them, what did he say? He says, it's for God to say vengeance is mine. But for you and I to turn one to another that way, what are we to do? We're to forgive. We're to extend, extend the hand of brotherly love. We're to have repentant hearts, right? We're to be Christ-like. You see, he, he's tied it together because in the book of Romans, we saw that teaching just on Sunday. It was last Sunday, actually, but, but it's not a new teaching. God has already established that. That's the way it works. We don't have to defend ourselves. Christ is our defense. We, we need to believe that, and we need to put, as, as Jesus said, we need to turn the cheek. We need to, we need to walk in love, peace, and fellowship. Well, now the children of Israel, the whole congregation journeyed from Kadesh, and they came to Mount Hor. They're taking a long way around. We're not really sure where Mount Hor is. We, we don't know exactly where this area is here. Scholars argue, but... But we're, we're, not, we're not 100%. Verse 23, he says, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mahor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word and the water of Mirabah, the water of contention. When did Aaron do that? Do you remember last week? I kind of mentioned a little bit of it. I said, pay attention back down here to verse 24. Look back up at verse 11. It, it, it seems, it seems when Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod and the water came out abundantly of the congregation and the animals drank, it seemed that Aaron, because it says right in verse 12, what? Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. Because you did not believe me to hollow me. It seems that somehow Aaron was part of this. Moses had the staff, the rod, right? He might have struck or smite the rock, which we're told was a picture of Jesus. That rock, right? First Corinthians chapter 10, 4 tells us that. He was the one. But, but what did Aaron do? And Aaron was going right along with it. Aaron was going right along with it. You might, you might say he was an accomplice. He was an accomplice to the affliction. He was an accomplice to the stripes, to the beating, not hollowing God's name. Does it matter what we do if we stand by an idol? Well, somebody's profaning God. Does it matter if we go along with it, even if we're not the ones that necessarily utter it, but we're in the company of the individuals and we seem to be in the right you know, kind of with them and along for the ride. Sure says something here, doesn't it? 
I don't know, maybe Aaron should have stood up and said, don't do that to my God. I wasn't there. We can all, you know, sideline quarterback this one, but, you know, the days we're living, have we heard people trash our God, trash his name, trash his spirit, trash his witness? Are we conveniently comfortable sitting idly by and, I mean, again, we're not, nobody's saying that we have to, you know, call someone to task on it necessarily. But is it too much to say, why don't you use my name? If you're that upset, use my name. Don't, don't do that to my God. My God said nothing but ever loved you. He died for you. If you want to trash anybody, put my name in there. It matters because they weren't hollowing. They weren't setting apart God as holy. That was what he said. To hollow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. That those people watching you and your life and the way you conduct yourselves. Hollowing God. More's caught than taught. More's caught than taught. Well, Take Aaron and Eleazar. Now, this is this has got to be surreal. I mean, I, I, are you getting a mental picture here? This, are you with me? I mean, are, are you tracking with us here as we're going in this passage? Are you getting the mental picture? He's God's now told him specifically right in front of the children of Israel, right, and, and they've journeyed, and he speaks to Moses and Aaron. And he's by this Mount Horeb, and we don't know exactly where it is. He says, you know, he gathered Aaron right to his people. He's, he's telling them what. He says, because you rebelled against my word, Aaron. And then he says, you and your son come here. Can you imagine Moses? Moses is going, what's going on? Wait a minute. Because Moses didn't see this coming. He just lost his sister. She just went to be, you know, with the Lord. He... He's probably just getting over that. He, he just met with this king of Edom that basically said, hey, you're trying to walk on the king's highway. I don't care if you're trying to follow God. I don't care what you're doing. I don't care if you offer money or I don't, I don't really care the reason. You're going to have to go around. I'm not going to make it easy for you. I'm not going to make it easy for you to walk in the will of God. It's going to be difficult. You're going to have to be determined, intentional. Moses comes through that. Okay. And now Aaron's called before him in Eleazar. You know what his name means? God is my help. God is my help. So here comes Eleazar. And what's about to happen? Moses is going to be told, your brother, because of his sin, he's going to die. His time is done. And his son you're going to take his you know, headpiece. You're going to take, remember we read about it, the breastplate. You're going to take all and you're going to put that on your son. And he's going to carry that on. But your brother, your brother's not going to go into that promised land. You know, I imagine before this point, Moses, being a good man, one of only two men in the whole Bible we read about, other than obviously Jesus Christ himself, Paul and Moses saying, you know what? I'd be willing to take on the sin of all my people if it meant that they would be saved. I would be willing to go to hell. Only two people, Paul and Moses, ever uttered that in all of the Bible. Here's this man. You don't think for one minute he thought, well, I blew it. It was me, God. I struck the rock twice. Aaron didn't mean it. He, he didn't know what he was doing. I, I know he's my older brother by a few years, but he didn't know. He was just standing there. He, he was innocent, well, but he wouldn't dare utter that to God. Because was he innocent? No, because you can't fool God. He sees the heart, and it already says there, then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. God knew Aaron's heart. Just picture Moses. No words. No words. His sister, now his brother, all in one year, they're all going to die, including Moses. This is heavy. And then Eleazar, I mean, dad, you know, he's the son, dad, what? 
I watched my two brothers die because they offered profane fire. Nadab and Abihu. Haven't we had enough loss? This is the next generation. It's supposed to be different. They're supposed to have caught on. We're supposed to have gotten it. We're not supposed to make the same mistakes our parents have made. We're not supposed to walk in the same religion our parents walked in. It's supposed to be our faith, our walk. It's supposed to be different. For Aaron shall be gathered to his people and die there. I can't imagine what Moses was thinking. Are you seeing it? Can you see the picture? Can you see the movie in your head now? So Moses did just as the Lord commanded. I... And they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. Everybody was watching. A church of two to three million people. They're all watching this. This isn't done in private. This wasn't hidden. Their sin and their objection wasn't hidden, was it? When they struck the rock twice in front of all the people. Moses telling Aaron this. Verse 28, Moses stripped Aaron of his garments. Can, I mean, he had to do it himself too. As an under-shepherd, as a pastor, as an individual believer in Christ, sometimes you have to do difficult things for God. You have to stand in the gap. Prophets, prophetesses, deacons, Deaconesses, your own brother, to take his off and put it on his son. You don't think Moses was like, I can't do that. A ask anybody else, Lord. I mean, there's two to three million people. Pick somebody else. Not my brother, my sister. Please, Lord, don't ask me to do this. We don't see Moses say a lick of that, does he? Because Moses loved God more than anybody else. And it wasn't easy. But God strengthened Moses. And Moses was able to follow the commandments and statutes of God. And so are you. And so am I. When God leads and God commands, God equips and God provides. Every single time. I know some of you are going through difficulties. I know some of you got some health issues. I know some of you have some workplace issues. I know there's a lot of things going on in this flock right now. And you're wondering, can I keep going? I know God's telling me to stand in the gap. I know he's telling me to live by his word. That I, I mean, we've been reading the book of Romans. I understand what I'm to live it. I understand how I'm to live it out. But come on, God, this isn't, I don't know how to do this. You're asking me to walk away from someone that might even be my mother because they, they take the Lord and, you know, and they stomp on him. They trash him. They claim to be a believer. I can't imagine. I can't imagine all that you all go through. You do. You go through a lot, all of you. I, I, I sit with you, many of you in counseling. I know the difficulties of what you're going through. I know the things that you have to do to stand in the gap, to stand with Christ. It's not easy, and it feels alone. And sometimes you wonder, will I be able to overcome? Will I be able to stay the course? You keep your eyes on Jesus. You keep your eyes on God. And you put one foot in front of the other. And you do what you're commanded to do. You are a soldier in God's army. And that's what Moses did. One of the meekest men in all the earth. He turned around. He took the garments. He put them on Eleazar's son. And Aaron died. There on top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. Remember, everybody's watching this. 
The emotions have to be at an all-time high. People are crying. Everything. Moses is trying to hold it together. You know, he's an under-shepherd. He's a leader of this, this church, this movement of Israel that God is establishing through these Hebrews, this movement of Calvary Chapel, and he's trying to hold it together. He's trying to stay the course. Meanwhile, everybody else is saying, we need to do this because it's seeker-sensitive. Or have you heard about this over here because, you know what, this is hip, this is a new way to worship. This is this teaching, you've you got to see the way, you, you know, man, the young people are coming out. They can't get enough of it. Are you willing to stay with God? Are you willing to stay the course that he has for you? Even when you know that it may not go according to plan. Moses knows he's not entering into that promised land. It's not like he's doing this in the hopes that somehow he's going to change God's mind. He knows it's difficult. He knows he can see the end. He knows how it's going to end. He's not going in. But ultimately, he does have hope because he knows he will be delivered. Truly, eternally delivered. You see, Moses had his eyes on the right thing. Not the temporal. Not the temporal obstacle in front of him. He had his eyes on the eternity that awaited him. Where are your eyes? In the midst of your trial, your obstacle, your pain, are your eyes on your situation in the temporal or are you eternally looking through the helmet of salvation what will be and is already done? It has been promised, it has been bought, it has been guaranteed and sealed. It's done and nothing can change it. Welcome to the family of Christ. Welcome to the promise of God. It doesn't mean there's not going to be crazy emotion or difficulty. He never said it would be easy, Jesus. Now, when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, all the house of Israel mourned for Aaron 30 days. They were wrecked. They were wrecked. Now, interesting, Mora. This is so interesting to me because last time we saw them when they're at Homora, what did they do? That's where they lied, except for Caleb and Joshua. That's where they said and bared false witness before they went into the promised land. Here they are, 38, 40 years old. They're right back where they were, a new generation, and they're right back in that same place. Is our God not a God of second chances? because they saw with their parents, they learned from that, and now God brings them right to this point. Do you remember? They were afraid to go in. They were afraid of the people in the land. They were afraid of the kings, the giant. They saw it all. Remember the big grapes? They were feasting on that big old grape. They're looking at it, and now look, it's like a different heart, man. And then even remember the parents afterwards? They, they were told, now you're not gonna go in the promised land, and they said, no, but now we'll go. No, it's God's will and God's way. But I love this because, yes, they're going to complain. Yes, they're going to blow it. But you know what? Through all of the difficulty of the wilderness wandering through their parents and their family, guess what it did? It strengthened their faith. It grew them. It matured them. You never grow closer to Jesus Christ than when you're in the middle of a trial or you're in the middle of a difficulty. You know why? It goes back to what we already talked about in chapter 20. Because you become reliant and you're not in the flesh of Edom, of Esau. You're not relying on your looks. You're not relying on your athleticism, your strength, your brawn, your rootiness. You're not relying on any of that. No, you're like little Israel, like Jacob. Relying on the spirit of God. You see, that's what we see here. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that, that they happen to have to go through Edom first, reminding us of the flesh right before they got to the places they're now back as they get to ready to make their way into the promised land. 
We still always got to battle the flesh. And right before we get into that promise on that blessing that God has us, because God has a blessing for every one of us here. Right before we get in that, we are faced with an obstacle. It's spiritual warfare. The enemy doesn't just release it and let it go. No, no, we're going to face it every time. There's going to be resistance when we go on the king's highway. When we travel the road that's less traveled, the narrow way, as Jesus said. We're going to face the resistance. We're going to face the difficulty. But we got to keep on keeping on. We can't give any, any movement to the flesh. We can't give any room to it. We can't, give any, we can't entertain it. The king of Arad, the Canaanite, who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the road to Ethurim. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. He, he came out aggressively again. So we see that what happens here, this new generation, they're going in here, and now they have a, really their first interaction with the enemy. I mean, I know you might say, well, what about in Edom? But remember, he came out, but they kind of went on. This is their first real battle. This is their first real battle. And it reads here that they lose some men. We don't know how many men, but they, but they lost some men here. So what do they do? Do they run away? Do they back away? Do they do what their parents did? We're not going in there. It's too difficult. They're too big. My God's in a box. He's not big enough. I can't go in that. I can't do this. This is, this is overwhelming. I, I can't. How are we going to do it? <laughs> what did Israel do? So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed deliver this people in my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. What is he saying here? Do, do you, <laughs> why is he saying that destroying the cities? Why did, they could have said we would have destroyed their people and we would have took the loot in the cities and it would have been ours. We read Saul did that, didn't he? We'll read it when we get there. Samuel. But what's, he, what's God drawing us to? That they're willing to take those cities and give them up to the glory of God. That they were comfortable just being obedient to God and they weren't looking for anything out of it. They weren't like, God, if you do this, you know, and I do this, then I'll get this. How many times in our prayer... Is God the genie in the bottle? You know, God, we wager. We wager with the living God. This is beautiful. This is surrendered. If you will indeed deliver the people into my hand, I, I will all destroy them in their cities. Now they're going to follow. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites just as he would have done the first time around, 40 years earlier. Just like he'll do for you today, if you trust him, he'll remove that obstacle. That's his job. Your job's to be obedient. Let him be God. God hears the prayers of his people. The prayers of a righteous man avails much. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them in their cities. So the name of that place was called Hamorah, right? Let's, you know, you, you start to look at this, and the name means utter destruction. That's what we see here. It's come full circle. Now, just when you think, Israel, you got it. You got it, boys. You got it this time. Gals, you got it. You're, 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 man, you just defeated the enemy. You know, you're going to Disney World, right? You know, what does it feel like to win the Super Bowl? You know, yeah, we did it. And what happens? <laughs> well, they didn't fall too far from, from the tree, right? The apple didn't fall far from the tree. More is caught than taught. You see, kids, <laughs> they have an interesting way of picking up things that we don't want them to see. But they do see it. Just as other people watch our lives and they see it, even though we think we're good at hiding it. We can't hide anything from God and we can't have anything from 
especially kids, they got like built-in baloney meters, man, right? Have you noticed that? They're like... (sighs) Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way because, again, they're heading back towards the wilderness again. And the people spoke against God. Notice, this is the first time we see this, really. Before, it was they spoke against Moses. We're going to see this eight times. Well, let me put it this way. We've seen them speak out eight times. If you're taking notes, um, Exodus chapter 15, verse 24. Chapter 16, verse 2. Chapter 17, verse 3. Numbers, chapter 12, verse 1. Numbers chapter 14, verse 2. Numbers chapter 16, verse 3. Numbers chapter 16, verse 41. And Numbers chapter 20, verse 2. Eight different times you will see, and if you look over on the other side of the page, you'll see it right there. As I mentioned, chapter 20, verse 2, you can see it. Now there was no water for the congregation. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron. Eight times it was against Moses or Aaron. But this is the first time that they speak directly. What is that called when you do that? Well, yes, it's blasphemy, but that's brazen. You know what the definition of brazen is? Foolishly bold. Foolishly bold. They spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food or no water. What? What about the quail and the manna, man? What about the water that you just, you know, God poured it out when you struck the rock? Or when Moses struck the rock twice, he poured out the water. What do you mean there was no food, no water? And our soul, our soul loathes this worthless bread? You see, that's the indicator there. That's the truth. Now we're seeing what they're about. It's not good enough that God provided. No, no, no. They want more. They want something different. They want something new. They want something new. The church wants something new. Come on, pastor. All you do is read the Bible over and over again, line by line, verse by verse. It was great at the conference. We got to see some of the guys in Calvary Chapel that have been doing this 30 and 40 years. It's great great got to see my pastor there and you know just the guys there that have been doing this 30 40 years and you know we don't go up and go what are you doing you know what's new in your church (laughs) you know I heard one guy says yeah I got through the bible it's my seventh time seventh time teaching through the bible averaging about seven six years he says you know I can remember when in 19 I think it was 65, or maybe it was actually 1970, somewhere in there. He says, I remember when Pastor Chuck, this is before you had the the movement, the Calvary Chapel movement. This is before the hippies and everything like that. He says, I can remember, because he he, he says, you know, he was at the Bible, you know, the Calvary Chapel Bible School. He remembered hearing Pastor Chuck talk. He says, I can remember he would come in. And remember, they had a church of originally, the original Calvary Chapel, 100, 125, 150 people. Our church of finger. I mean, that, that was the original, you know, church before the before the the, the moving of the Holy Spirit and, the, and everything that happened like that, the, the revival. And he, Pastor Chuck had it on his heart to just begin to teach line by line and verse by verse because he had gone through all his seminary notes of two years and he had no fresh material. So the Lord put it on his heart. He says, You know what? When I really read the Bible, I read, you know, even when Jesus came, he went into the synagogue. And he opened up the word and he began to read the word. And he gave exposition. Because you can't, you know, if you're going to follow the word of God, you're not concerned with the application. You're not building a bridge. You're not creating a fancy sermon outline. God does that through the Holy Spirit in the heart. Your job is proper expository. The pastor, that is the under shepherd. It's proper expository, expository preaching. What's the context? What's the historical narrative? Why does it matter? What are we doing? Who's there? Who's the original ones? Good hermeneutics. Who is this intended for? And what was the purpose? Is that not what we do week after week? 
We come in here, we get the context set, and we go line by line. Nothing different. How beautiful that is. That they've gone through what he said he used to go through in the beginning. You ready for this? Through the whole Bible in two years. A year, actually, year and a half first. He was doing somewhere around two to four chapters in the New Testament a week. And he was doing something like five or seven chapters in the Old Testament a week. Just imagine. Imagine the preparation that God, because it was expository. It wasn't just reading, reading. He was giving context. He was, you know, doing a little narrative of the Greek at times, the Hebrew at times. But they wanted something new. It's amazing. When we go back to what God does, and the blessings that God provided, Acts 2.42, the beginning of the church, the Christian church. When we go back to the word and we do it God's way, the blessing flows. God draws people. It's amazing, you know, as he sees adding unto the church daily. But what did they do? Was there something new? When, when Pastor Chuck went back to that, was, was it new? Or was it what the prophets had done? Was it what we see Jesus had done? God honors his word because there's power in the word of God and it doesn't return void. That's why you're here. You know all that. I know I'm talking to you and you're all like, amen, that's why we're here. We get it. But, but it's amazing because do you know how special it is that we can come in and that we submit ourselves under the word when you've got a whole world out there trying to find what is the next fad to draw the church in? What is the next fad to entice them to come? Because Pastor Chuck used to say, you start down that road and you draw them in with something, you'll always be keeping them with something new. You draw them in with the word, you'll never have to worry about attendance. God will add to the seats, they'll fill up, and heaven flows. Generation, kids after kids, you'll be baptizing their kids, you'll be marrying their kids, their kids' kids, if the Lord should tarry. God, just God does it, he honors it and he blesses it. It's his word. And that's what we see here. They, where's the new bread? Where, where's the new something, right? That's what they want here. And this is what they're speaking against God about. And they lied. I mean, they lied to God. There's no food and water. This worthless bread. This worthless Bible. This worthless word. Heaven forbid. Heaven forbid that anybody would ever utter that in their mouth. But today, you can go into many churches across America and they even have a book, a Bible. You come in and they got a shelf and you put your Bible on the shelf. Oh yeah, have you never been to church? Like, When you're on vacation, go visit. We, we even have people come, you know, it's beautiful. We just had someone on Sunday. And I don't say this to draw attention to us. It's not, it's not about it. We had someone, they were visiting. They were in Virginia. They went somewhere, they were visiting. And they went, you know, they were visiting a family member. So they went into the family and they're like, nobody greeted me. You know, not, nobody even knew I was there. Um, the man began to speak. I, I didn't hear one Bible passage, not even one verse, not even like at least starting with a verse and like jumping off somewhere, like stringing a pearl, nothing. He's like, it, it was really all, you know, about what's going on, kind of tied in some current events and everybody had a kumbaya and, Went downstairs and ate. And he's like, Pastor, I beg you. He says, please don't ever change what you're doing here. And I said, no, I, I, I praise the Lord, you know, because I, I don't want that drawn. That's Jesus. I, I got nothing to do with that. I just, I stay away from that. And he's like, no, 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 really. And I'm like, I, I get you. And, and I'm walk, trying to walk away. And he goes, no, really. <laughs> and I go, okay, maybe that's of the Lord that way. Okay, Amen we're going to stay the course because we have no plans of leaving it. We, we don't know anything else to do other than what Jesus did and what Jesus testified to. It's his word. We don't look for something new. We look to be transformed. The newness is done in our hearts week after week. He creates something new in us. We don't need to bring something new to him. You see the difference? He's the author and finisher of the work. Well, so obviously God's not going to, he's a loving God for whom he loves, he corrects. He's going to have to somehow steer this next generation. 
So the Lord sent fiery, and that, that idea is red, or it could mean fiery from a bite. That's what the scholars seem to debate. There's a lot of ideas behind it, um, but some say it's maybe a red serpent or a kind of a serpent with uh, uh, big fangs. Among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died there. Hmm. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sin- It's amazing for whom the love Lord he corrects. When God corrects and with a humble heart. I got to tell you, I read this when I was reading it even devotionally, and I thought how sweet this is. It took their parents years to come to a place of humility, to repent, to get right with God. And yet, once they realize, oops, we went too far. We've crossed the line here, Lord. It says, we went right to Moses. We have sinned. God, forgive us, Lord. Forgive us, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents for us. Notice what he asked Moses, pray. Because they know, these kids have seen it. Moses, when you pray, when there's intercessory prayer, God responds. God is a God that responds to the incense and the prayer of his people. Moses, will you pray? So Moses prayed for the people. If somebody ever comes up to you and you're in the lobby or you're in the cafe and they're telling you what's going on in their lives, friends, don't wait. Don't say, well, I'll pray for you. Have a good night. And you, you you begin to go, don't do that. Stop and pray right there. I'll just give you a, a little hint of why. Because you go home, you get busy, you got the kids, you got other things pulling at you. And, and maybe earnestly in your heart, you want to pray for them, right? You love them. They're your brother or sister in Christ. You want to, but you might forget. You might forget. Stop right then and there. You know what? I'm going to pray for you. Some of you maybe have noticed that, right? If, if, you, t- if you begin to say, oh, this is what's going on. Let's pray right now. I don't want to forget. I don't want to forget. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. So just picture this, okay? I want you to picture this. A pole is vertical, right? So you you, you got something like this. Nothing like an ad hoc on the move, right? You've got a vertical and you've got something like a fiery serpent that's horizontal. What's that look like to you? Or maybe does this look a little... More appropriate. Hang on here. I don't plan these things out. What's that look like? Isn't that interesting? Just think about that for a minute in your mind. Here, let's let's continue reading. Because I started thinking about that. The vertical and the horizontal. What is that pointing to? If they put their eyes on that. If they look towards the cross. If they look towards their redemption and their deliverer, as he prepared their hearts as a picture of what Jesus Christ would do. And if that wasn't enough, maybe they were like, well, I don't know. But he says, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and it shall be to everyone who is bitten. Then he looks at it and it shall, and it, and he shall live. Even after they're bitten, they shall live. Even after their sin, even after they're bitten, even after there's already been pain, even after there's already been the mistake, even after there's already been sin, what is God saying? He can make it right. He can make it right because they will live, even though surely they should have died. But God conquered death in the grave, didn't he? So Moses made a bronze serpent. What does bronze speak to in the Bible? judgment, sin, judgment from sin. If, again, if you didn't already get the T, you know, or the vertical and the horizontal, he's, he's making sure we don't miss the picture here. And he put it in a pole so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone. When he had looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. We're going to close with this. Turn to Isaiah 45, 22, please. Isaiah Chapter 45, we're going to look at verse 22, please.
Look at the prophet Isaiah, what he got. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. You, you just, you can't, you can't miss this. It's like God was saying, look at the cross, look at Jesus, look at what saves. In verse 22 of Isaiah 45, look at me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. How about it? Huh? Well, if that wasn't enough, let's, let's look at John. John chapter 3. Verse 14. Just because God can. I love our God, don't you? The richness he's given us in the word. You see, as I was just going through that from an expository or exegesis perspective, I don't want anybody to think I was eisegeting there or mere reading in. I want you to see Jesus' own words here. He himself was comparing himself to the serpent and the idea. Again, John chapter 3, right? Hmm. Look at verse 14. John chapter 3, 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him would be saved. It's all about John 3.16. And you know the funny thing? I didn't know I was going to wear this shirt today. (laughs) I was at a conference. But God did. As Sandy said, God did. And you want to see how the Holy Spirit moves and tie it together. Look out. He's moving. Let's have eyes to see and ears to hear. Let's stand and pray and Jenny, come on up. We'll have a closing song. We'll worship our God. But, but how beautiful is that? When you look at the bronze serpent, he lived. If there's anybody here tonight that doesn't know Jesus Christ, and you've been looking at all other things in your life, I want to introduce you to the one that loves you and who's died for you, and he desires that you would look unto him. Because I promise you, if you do, and you confess his name, and you can believe in him, that you will have eternal life. He will forgive you from every sin. He will set your sins as far as the east is from the west. He will give you a new heart. He will give you the ability to believe, and he will do the work in you through sanctification, making you the man or woman that has the heart after Jesus, that is growing in his likeness, and that will one day spend eternity with God, never ever separated, no sickness, no death. And he guaranteed it all and signed it all through the Holy Spirit, his promiser, his keeper, his, his gift to us, his guarantee, as witness through his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. It's not a blind faith. Faith is only as good as what you place your faith in. What are you placing your faith in today? I put my faith in Jesus. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this word. I thank you that you have just foreordained it for even the foundations of the world, Lord God. We know that your, your word will never pass away. Lord, we know that your word will, even in all through eternity, will be the only thing that lasts as a remnant, God, of this temporal earth, Lord, will be this word and the people who have you, Jesus that are in your heart, that are in our hearts, Lord, you in our hearts. Everything else will be fleeting, wood, hay, stubble, it will all burn. But God, your word will never feel, flee, Lord. It'll never leave us. Thank you, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your work on the cross. Thank you that even, Lord, you were telling your saints even back then to look and know my God saves. 
Jesus, I pray tonight for those that have not made professions of faith. I pray right now for our community, for this neighborhood, for the neighborhoods in our neighborhoods where we go home, Lord, for our workplaces, Lord. Lord Jesus, that you would, God, move in the hearts of your people. Give us a word for your people, Lord. Give us a divine calling, Lord God, to, to go and stir up, Lord, hearts for you. Let us do the work of an evangelist. And then, Lord, let us stay to be a disciple maker. Lord, you tell us over and over again, healthy sheep reproduce. Thank you, God, for the work you're doing here at Calvary Chapel Harrisburg, Lord. Thank you for the people here. Thank you for their hearts and their communities. Thank you, Lord, that they are staying on that King's Highway, that we're not looking to jump off no matter, no matter the difficulty, no matter the, what we're facing right now, no matter the trial, Lord, no matter even unto death, God. We'll stay, on that, we'll stay right on that narrow path and we'll, we'll keep our eyes affixed on you, Jesus, our deliverer, our healer, our everything. God, we just want to praise you tonight and glorify in who you are, God, because you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus, for all you're doing in our hearts. Thank you for the transformation in our lives, Lord. Lord, may we breathe and speak nothing but just beautiful psalms and hymns from you alone. Let us just praise you one more time tonight corporately, Lord, as we're gathered here. And God, Maranatha, if Lord, in the middle of this song, you take us home, Lord Jesus, we're ready. Lord, have your way in us. Thank you, Jesus.